Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Theologically podcast, the show where we teach you how and why you should think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodgen, joined by our resident theologian in training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how are you doing? Doing pretty good. It is uh, starting to get hot down here in the south. Uh, Here too, man. It's so. I don't know if you classify Oklahoma as, as south. Some people yeah. do and others don't, but now you're you're more south than I am now, so who knows? The but humidity. it's getting hot here too, for sure. Uh, I think we're looking at triple digits. We actually we had triple digits in some areas. Thankfully, I was only in the like 96, but it was on Sunday, and I could feel it in the suit, man. Yeah, we're consistently, I think, the last time I looked, I think down here in the mid-90s, like is, oh. like if you look at the two-week uh, weather outlook, I think pretty much every day is supposed to be mid-90s, add humidity the heat. to that. I'll take that if the wind stops. Like, give me one or the other. No, that's not true. Don't give me one. I'm done with the wind. Wind does stupid i can take as much water as possible and sunscreen and play disc golf in the heat don't care i will play in actual atmospheric soup that's fine i cannot play in the wind i'm tired of the wind enough of that and then when it's when it's 96 and also windy and you just have a heater blowing on you constantly everywhere that you are. It's a nightmare. Yeah. I, horrible. I, I, at some point I need to, I, I really need to buy a, a golf cart fan. Oh yeah. I bet that's <laughs> just like driving open into the, Oh, that's not so good. Keep cool. Not so good. I, I feel like, you know, pick of, of the three things, pick two of them. Okay, it's either wind, heat, and uh, June bugs. Okay, only two yeah, of those can exist at one time. From from my perspective, wanting to golf, uh, as long as the wind makes it difficult, but the heat, I I mean, if I want to, I can just play early. Yeah, um, before it gets schedule, no big deal. Before it gets miserable, but when the wind's bad, there's no. I mean, there's not, you can't adjust your schedule to solve that problem. Yeah. Yeah. So I wouldn't no, agree. No good at all. No good at all. Uh, well, that ends our uh, regular complaining about the weather section of our <laughs> Thinking Theologically podcast. The weather is just bad. We just need, we need better. We need better because we want to get out. We like talking about these things in our offices or wherever we happen to find ourselves when we're doing these things, but it would be nice to be able to get outside every once in a while. We love studying, but man, it would be nice to, to be out of. I like uh, golf too. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, our last episode, our last two, really, we, we talked about Jesus in the synoptics and his new creation terminology and how he viewed things, how he talked about all of those things. Uh, And that took us a couple episodes to unpack all of that stuff. Uh, And now we're headed into some of the other New Testament writings, specifically those of Paul. That's what's coming up next, but we can't talk about that yet until we uh, do what we did for Jesus and step back, kind of look at Paul and his, his worldview, how he used certain terms and phrases, because those terms and phrases are going to be very important moving forward as we talk about the new creation stuff. So this is very much a foundation episode uh, for, I don't know, I don't know how many we'll do specifically on Paul, because there's a lot of texts that we could look at um, concerning him. There's at least, I, I would say there's at least three that have to be talked about. Okay, yeah. With, with I, that you can't not talk about. And so we might have a couple, Paul. Now, how many we go past that? I don't know, but there's at minimum three you have to deal with. Three big ones and a bunch of bunch of little things, a bunch of other stuff. Place too. So uh, we might have 
probably a, a couple Paul episodes, maybe three or something like that. But uh, we need to have a foundation for Paul and his terminology and how he viewed things and all of that. So that's what this episode is. Uh, along those lines, some important, some important information and why it's good to go to thinkingtheologically.org. Uh, There are going to be just a quick scan of the show notes here. There's probably like 40 verse references on this paper. We are not going to read through all of those. We will uh, probably allude to some of those and all of that, but we're really just more concerned about information dumping here than we are about proving all of that. Um, But if you go to those texts, you'll be able to see exactly what we're talking about and why we're saying what we're saying. So definitely go to thinkingtheologically.org, use the show notes, and go check out those verses for extra study on your your own time. We hope you're doing that anyway. Never take anybody's word for anything. Um, Yes, we've studied and have understanding and have looked at other people and their study and their understanding and all of this, but do that on your own as well. Uh, Don't just hear what we say and then go parrot that. Do your own studying. This is a great place to do all of that. Uh, Start looking at all those verses and everything. Uh, Along those lines, uh, along the uh, thinkingtheologically.org lines, we have some other stuff that's posted there uh, in written form uh, that are just little bonus articles kind of filling in the gaps of these different things. If you have not liked us on Facebook, uh, then you probably haven't seen those. So what are you waiting for? Like like us on Facebook. That's also a great place to get in contact with us if you have any uh, questions, comments, criticisms, or maybe suggestions for things that you would like us to talk about in the future. Uh, also along those lines, you can just get a hold of us personally uh, on our Facebook messaging or numbers if you have our phone numbers. Twitter, if you're there, you can get a hold of Spencer that way. Uh, or you can email us at strongchurchministries at gmail.com. We'd love to hear all of that feedback because we love doing this stuff. We want to make sure people are listening to it. And so if you have specific things you want us to deal with, uh, we'd like to hear that so that we can deal with those things. Uh, I think that's all of the. I think that's all of our introductory stuff out of the way. Uh, we have a lot of things to define today, a lot of terms to look at, and a lot of just Paul to understand to, to get in his head a little bit here. Uh, Spencer, let's start with his worldview uh, and how Paul saw the world uh, and how that influenced his writing here. So we we talked about this with Jesus too. Both Jesus yes. and Paul have the same worldview and that's partly well it's it's not partly it's it's due to the fact that they're coming from the same kind of tradition they're both Jews living in a greco-roman world yeah. um and this is a very jewish way of uh, viewing and, and understanding the world and so both paul and jesus have what we defined as an apocalyptic worldview. So just like with Jesus, with Paul, this apocalyptic worldview is going to influence the way not only that Paul sees, but also how Paul is going to speak and write about everything uh, from God's story to faith, Jesus, humanity, salvation. All of those things are impacted by Paul's apocalyptic worldview. And so just briefly, I'll define what that is once again. An apocalyptic an apocalyptic worldview is the view that in the world there's this battle that's going on. It's a ba- battle between forces of good and evil, forces of God and Satan. And so Jesus, as the leader of the kingdom of God, or as the king of the kingdom of God, uh, Jesus has come into the world to battle these forces of evil, forces of sin and death and Satan and all of those things. And Jesus and the kingdom of God ultimately win the battle, they win the war, they win the victory at the cross through the resurrection. The world now waits for the complete victory and the fullness of the kingdom of God when Jesus returns and the kingdom is fully realized. So in the apocalyptic worldview, you've got this battle, you've got forces of good and evil, you've got this kingdom language, you've got Jesus winning the victory. And it's through that, not only is that how Jesus viewed the world 
and that impacted the way that Jesus spoke and taught, uh, but it also was the way that Paul viewed the world. And it's through that lens of this battle that's going on that uh, Paul is going to talk about uh, everything, really. Like I said, God's story, faith, Jesus, humanity, salvation is all going to be impacted by this worldview. I think the Maybe the the best way to understand or the the most obvious place that we see this in Paul uh, is when Paul talks about the armor of God in Ephesians 6. Uh, He says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and authorities in the heavenly realm. And so he says, we need to put on the armor of God. And so you get that image of, yeah, there's this battle that's going on between forces of good and forces of evil. Uh, now, in Paul's day, these principalities and powers, these what we might want to say spiritual forces, were understood as impacting the physical world. Yep. So if you saw, for example, evils of the Roman Empire, uh, yes, we're at battle against those, but Paul would say th- those are just f- manifestations of this bigger battle that's going on. Uh, but Paul would say Jesus has won the victory uh, in Colossians you see some language of principalities and powers from Paul, and Paul, in essence, says, uh, don't worry about those because those who are in Christ belong to a king who has taken victory and power away from them. Um, so it's not just, let's not make it too spiritual because the the way that these this spiritual battle works itself out is on earth in what we would say in a very physical way, the evils and stuff that we see. Paul's just making the point that there's something bigger going on in the world. And as a result, we as Christians belong to someone bigger than just what's going on in the world. Someone who has conquered and defeated all of the powers of evil in every place and every manifestation. Um, But uh, more of that uh, to come as we delve into more specific texts in Paul later on. Uh, but that's the view through which Paul is going to discuss everything, uh, particularly when we look at new creation, heaven, eternal life, story of God is all going to come back to this apocalyptic kingdom worldview. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned Ephesians 6 is probably the most obvious because of that phrase of we don't fight against this, but against this thing. It's a very clear contrast. It's very understood, at least. Uh, what what he's talking about, um, uh, <laughs> at least to some degree, where we're like, oh, okay, I understand what this is, but that's not our battle. Our battle is this thing that's contrasted with it. Got it. Um, but that's, while it's the most obvious place, like Spencer's saying, this is everywhere, even in places that you've probably read of Paul and not seen that. Uh, but it's it's everywhere throughout his his writing uh, in all sorts of books. So uh, it's good to kind of take the Ephesians 6, 10 through 17 mentality and realize that Paul wasn't there for a moment. He was always there uh, viewing things that way, talking about things that way, advising our living as Christians as a result of that belief. Uh, and again, as Spencer said there, as we go through these various, however many episodes of Paul, uh, we'll see that uh, in various ways uh, throughout his writing here. Speaking of his writing, uh, Paul, uh, today we're going we're gonna to look at four words uh, that Paul uses quite often, uh, four different uh, Greek words here that he employs in a lot of his writing uh, to that effect of physical and spiritual and uh, I'm sure we'll have a lot to say uh, about the physical, spiritual kind of contrast, but also, as Spencer's already mentioned here, uh, that the spiritual battle has physical manifestation and all of this. So while they might be contrasted and different, there's also a connection uh, that we need to understand here. Uh, and Paul writes that way. He spoke that way. Uh, and so we're going to define uh, these four terms. Spencer's just going to go through and list them all out. This is where all those verses are sitting in the show notes. So if you want to see where these things are coming from, uh, please check those things out and read those things here. Uh, Spencer, let's start with uh, let's start with our, our terms here. Uh, the word body, uh, Greek soma. Uh, what do you want to say about say about that? Yeah. So w- when when 
like you said, when we start thinking about spiritual versus physical, and when when we, you know, we're talking about new creation, we're talking about heaven, we're talking about eternal life, so we're addressing these questions of how does God's story end, which is addressing issues of, well, is it spiritual, is it physical, is it a, a mixture of, of both? Um, and so to, to understand what Scripture as a whole says about that, particularly what Paul, we have to understand how what they mean when they use terms that are connected to this idea of spiritual versus physical, so that when we look at texts that are dealing with, well, okay, now how does that relate to eternal life, to heaven, to the conclusion of God's story, we can have a better understanding of what's going on. And that's important we don't have time to delve into it too much in this episode. Maybe at some point, probably once we finish new creation stuff, I would like to come back and think about the history of our current understanding of the human being, of the difference between physical and spiritual. And, and I say that to say the way that most people, and, and I would say this is probably true for Christian, non-Christian, uh, for everyone, but more uh, particularly for Christians, our current view of the makeup of the human being and of the difference between physical and spiritual is generally not biblical. We get it from a lot of other philosophical places yes. that are not the Bible. Yep. And so... One of the things we want to do by looking at how Paul uses terms that relate to the idea of the physical and the spiritual is partly to get more of a biblical view of how the Bible understands the physical and the spiritual and how the Bible understands how the human being has been created and how the human being is made up, what what makes up a true human being. And with that I want to say before we I, I dive into the how Paul uses the word body, the way that Paul is going to use these terms and the way that Paul is going to talk about the spiritual versus the physical is the way all of Scripture does, from Genesis to Revelation. Paul in the is using these terms and speaking of these concepts as a Jew. So they're heavily influenced by the Old Testament. But now Paul is looking and speaking at them in light of Jesus. Yeah. And so it's Paul's going Paul is consistent with the entirety of scripture because he's taking these Jewish concepts and interpreting them, not changing their meaning, but he's now looking at how they are carried out, how they're fulfilled in light of what God has done in Jesus. And so we don't get a change in the spiritual physical really from Old to New Testament or from Paul to other writers, it's generally the same. And I think that's important to keep in mind, even though right now we're wanting to focus specifically on Paul. And then to allow the way that Scripture uses these terms to change the way we think about the physical-spiritual divide and the way we think about human beings. Because as I said, without taking time to get into how we got here, the place that we are now is that most people's understanding is influenced more by things outside of Scripture than the way Scripture actually uses these terms. And so what we tend to do is we tend to read these outside things back into Scripture and interpret the way that Scripture uses these terms in ways that Scripture's not actually using them. So with that said, we'll get into the term body. Uh, as Jack said, it's, it's the Greek word soma. And the way that Paul uses the word soma, the way he uses the word body, is to speak about the physical manifestation of the human being. It's your physical, what we would call your physical body, what, you, what we can see, what we can touch, the, the body that we interact with. And it's important to recognize that not only Paul, but all of Scripture, again, Genesis through Revelations, recognizes our physical bodies as good. It's what God created in the beginning, and it's what God, back in Genesis, declared as very good. And so the body is a good thing. Um, you, can go out, you can go through the history of 
human beings and see all kinds of philosophies that have popped up that have said that the physical body, for one reason or another, is bad or unimportant or you don't have to worry about it or something like that. Uh, And if you trace those, you can see all kinds of problems with that. Paul even seems to be dealing with some of those that, well, you know, if the physical body is is bad, uh, it doesn't matter what you do in it. Yeah. Uh, Particularly when you think of uh, sexual sins, it's like, well, it's fine to gratify those desires of the body in any way that you want, because eh, it doesn't really matter what you do with the body. That's one of the, the consequences of not viewing the body as as good, as very good as uh, right. that which has been created by God. You see that through the history of, of human beings in general. Uh, you even see it within some uh, divisions of Judaism and Christianity. But what I would say is Orthodox Judaism and Christianity has always said, no, the body is good. It's been created and designed by God. The problems that we have is not that the physical body is bad, but that sin has corrupted our physical bodies. And that's where Paul is going to be coming from when he uses this word body to talk about the physical manifestation of the human being. It's good. And you see that, for example, Paul uh, talks about Jesus, a sinless human being who had a body. Jesus was fully human, but he was also sinless. He was perfect. Uh, We've talked in previous podcasts about why Jesus needed to become a human being, why uh, salvation only works if Jesus was fully human. And so if the body's bad... Jesus couldn't, nor would he have needed to become fully human because he would be saving something other than our bodies, some spiritual part of us. Uh, So we wouldn't need to become a human being. If the body's bad, Jesus couldn't have been the perfect human being and still had a body. Uh, And so that's important in Paul. Um, In Paul, the resurrection is of central importance. Uh, And Paul talks about the resurrection how we as Christians await the resurrection and the redemption of our bodies, of our soma, of our physical manifestations. And that's central in Paul's theology and understanding of Jesus, that Jesus was raised and we as Christians wait for the same type of resurrection as Jesus, which includes our physical bodies. Yes, they're going to be changed. Yes, they're going to be different. We'll talk more about that as we move forward. But our resurrection for Paul is connected to Jesus' resurrection. You can't have one without the other. And Jesus' tomb was empty, right? His physical body actually rose from the grave and walked out of the tomb. And Paul says, we're going to be resurrected in the same way. It's also important to note that you can't resurrect something that hasn't died. Sometimes we talk about resurrection as, well, it's just a spiritual thing. It's the soul or the spirit or whatever that's going to be resurrected. Uh, But if you believe that the soul is something that continues to live on after death, even after the body dies, you can't resurrect that because it hasn't died. By necessity, you can only resurrect something that has died and Our physical human bodies, at least to my knowledge, is the only thing that quite fits that definition. It's how Jesus was raised. I also want to mention that this concept of some kind of spiritual, non-physical, non-bodily resurrection didn't exist in the first century. That was not a concept. In the first century, resurrection always meant the physical body walking out of a tomb. Um, Mm. If you have any interest in that, uh, N.T. Wright wrote a book called Jesus and the Resurrection of the Son of God. Uh, It's like 600 pages. So, I mean, if you want to, you can go read the entire thing, but it's massive. But it's all about proving the resurrection and all those kinds of things. But he has a whole section in there where he lays out a long extended argument that the idea of a non-physical resurrection didn't exist in the first century. And it's an argument that I don't think you can argue against. And his point there is to say, that Jesus' actual body was raised. He's talking specifically about Jesus, but that would refer to all the discussion of resurrection that was going on in the first century. It was always physical. It was always bodily. 
And so because of that, because the body's good, because we're writing for the resurrection and the redemption of our bodies, uh, Paul talks about how we are to honor God in our bodies, uh, that it matters what we do in our bodies, uh, and so we will be judged for what we do in our bodies. And normally, Paul's talking about sexually related things there, that when you commit sexual sin, you're sinning against your body and somebody else's body, and that's important because bodies are important, because God created them to be used in a certain way, because we're waiting for them to be redeemed, all of that. It matters how you treat your body, and it matters how you treat other people's bodies, physical bodies. And you see that nowhere better than the the sinfulness uh, connected to all the different kinds of sexual sin. So that's normally uh, the kind of things that Paul's talking about when he says, honor God in your bodies, and you're going to be judged for what you've done in the body. And so connected to body, the the second important word is the term flesh, which is the Greek word sarx. And this is where a lot of the times as just casual Bible readers, we can have some difficulty uh, because on one level, at least in English, it sounds like, well, these are the same ideas. Body, flesh, Paul must be talking about the same thing. And that leads us into a lot of problems. And that's where a this is where a more negative view of the body comes from. And some of the struggles that we sometimes have with thinking of heaven, resurrection, eternal life, including our physical bodies, because we misinterpret Paul's use of body versus flesh. So body is good. Physical body, what God created, what Jesus had, what's going to be resurrected, good. Flesh, when Paul uses the word flesh, he's talking about the evil, sinful part of the human being, not our physical body. And so flesh is always negative in Paul. Um, Now, just like with any of these things, any of these words we're talking about generally, there's always the possibility that there's an exception here and there where this one time maybe Paul is using it slightly differently. Sure. Um, but it's important when you're studying someone like Paul that you say, okay, Paul almost always uses flesh as negative. And so you better have a really, really, really good reason to believe that Paul's using it in a different way. And I would argue that Paul never uses flesh in a positive way, and he's never using flesh to talk about the physical body. I, I, I don't think there's an exception to this. Maybe there is, and there are some places where people might try to make an argument for that. But again, you better have a really, really good reason because the vast majority of the time, this is the way Paul is using these terms. And so flesh is the evil, sinful part of the human being, not our physical bodies. And so Paul will say things like the flesh uh, must be destroyed in Christ. In, In other words, when you come into Christ, the flesh, the sinful part of us is done away with. It's destroyed. We throw it away. It's been forgiven. Um, Paul likes to contrast life in the flesh, that is life in sin, and life in the Spirit, life in the Holy Spirit, uh, life in the kingdom of God. Uh, The most obvious example is Galatians 5, where you have the works of the flesh versus uh, the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says, when you're living in sin, you manifest the works of the flesh, the sinful part of us. But as a Christian... We're called to live in the Spirit, and when we live in the Spirit, we manifest different things, the fruit of the Spirit. Um, Paul can also sometimes use this term flesh to refer to our current earthly life where we are still under the power of sin. And I think this is one of those places where sometimes we can get some confusion and want to apply the term flesh to like our physical bodies or physical existence and say, well, this physical world is bad. It's evil. So God's got to destroy it, right? We've already talked about the problems with that 
going all the way back to Genesis of, well, God created it, so it's good. He said it was good. The problem's sin, not the the physical world. Uh, But when Paul uses the term flesh like this, sometimes it can cause us some confusion. And the idea that Paul's getting across is you have that now but not yet aspect of the kingdom of God, right? The, The victories are already won, but we're waiting the fullness of the kingdom. Yes. We as Christians are already saved. We've already been freed from sin and death, but yet we still struggle with sin. We're still going to die. We haven't fully realized that yet. And so sometimes Paul will use this term flesh to refer to our current life here where it's like, yeah, we're saved, but we still struggle with sin. We do still sin. We do still make mistakes. And he'll use the word flesh in that context, not to talk about the evil of the physical body or physical existence, but to just talk about this evil age. Paul uses language like that sometimes. This evil age that we live in before the fullness of the kingdom has come, where we still struggle uh, with sin. Uh, maybe I, I think of Romans 7, where Paul talks about the good I want to do, I don't, the evil I don't want to do, that's the thing I keep on doing, how that that struggle characterizes our life now. Yeah. Um, and sometimes he'll use the word flesh to speak of that struggle that we still face and that we still have to try to overcome. Um, and the last way that Paul will use his flesh, and again, sometimes this causes some uh, confusion, is he'll use it to speak about the unnecessary requirement of circumcision. So in a lot of Paul's letters, he deals with this issue of Jewish Christians wanting to force Gentiles to be circumcised before they can become Christians. And the language that Paul will use is, he'll say things like mutilation of the flesh is what they're trying to do. And he'll use this word sarks to talk about circumcision. And again, sometimes we'll we'll want to read that, well, Paul's talking about the physical human body because that's what you circumcise. And that's true, But he's actually doing more of a play on words by using flesh instead of body to say that, yeah, it's your physical body that you're mutilating, but what you're doing is wrong. What you're doing is part of our sinful existence in making Gentiles become Jews to become Christians. And so Paul intentionally uses the word flesh, not to say that circumcision of the body is wrong, but to say that forcing circumcision is wrong, is sinful, is part of the flesh. It's not a part of the spirit. And Paul actually, in those contexts, a lot of the times, will then move on to that con- that contrast of life in the flesh versus life in the spirit. That because we're in the spirit, you, there's no longer a need for circumcision. And he'll do a play on these words of body, flesh, and spirit. But again, he's still using it not to talk about our physical bodies, really, and he's not using it in a positive sense there either. He's condemning those who would force Gentiles Hmm. to become Jews. And so that moves us on now to the word soul. So we're getting to some spiritual words uh, in Greek, soul is the word suke, and it's only used 24 times in Paul. So Paul does not use the word soul very often. The New Testament doesn't use soul very often. Um, we love the word, but it's not that popular of a New Testament term. And interestingly, at least uh, I, 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 I know I looked at the NRSV, the ESV, uh, maybe another translation, and Suke in Paul is only translated soul one time, hmm. and that's in First Thessalonians five twenty three, where Paul lists body, soul, and spirit. Um, every other time, it's translated either something like life, human being, living being, something like that. In other words. Paul, in particular, and scripture in general, uses soul very differently than we do. 
Uh, we use soul a lot of the times to talk about almost like our true selves. Our true selves is our soul. It's almost like a ghost that kind of haunts our body and continues to live on after we get to discard this old body and go lit. Our soul gets to go and live eternally in this spiritual realm. That's how we tend to use soul. That is not in any shape or form the way that Scripture, Old or New Testament, uses the word soul. Paul uses the word soul to refer to life or to a living being. Um, I had a professor that defined the word soul throughout Scripture, Genesis, Revelations, Old and New Testament, as the sum of the acts of the body. It's your whole self. It's your living being. It's your life that goes and does things in your body. That's the way Paul uses soul. It's not a. It's not really something separate from the body, at least not the way that Paul uses it, uh, because it's life, and it's your body that has life, and it's your living being, your whole self that goes out and does things, and that's the way that Paul uses the, the term. It's not your true self. It's not some ghost or spiritual self. It's you as a living being. That's generally how Paul uses it. Uh, there are a couple of times that Paul will use the word to refer to the inner strength of a person. So it'll be translated like heart or mind or something like that. The idea of, um, you know, well, we, we may say, you know, put your heart into it. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, put your whole self, your whole life into it. So it's really used the same way, but just slightly differently. Um, and so that's the way Paul is going to use soul. It's not, again, it's not some spiritual self that's haunting your body and waiting to be released. It's you. It's your whole self. And you can put that whole self into things that you do. And so that moves us finally to the word spirit. Uh, which is, depending on how you believe uh, Greek was originally pronounced, pneuma or penuma, whether or not you think the P's should be pronounced or not. Sure. I think it should. Uh, I, I'm from the school of penuma, is how I would pronounce spirit. But uh, So you've got this other spiritual term. And almost always... This may be the one where there, there's more room for a few exceptions. But almost always, Paul uses the word spirit to refer to the Holy Spirit uh, or to the part within the Christian that is connected to life in the Spirit. So we believe that God's Spirit dwells and works inside of us as Christians, right? So. Paul can refer to the spirit of the Christian by saying, live in tune with that, that that part of you that's controlled, that's guided by the spirit. That's the way that Paul is typically going to use the word spirit, either directly to the Holy Spirit or to speak about the work of the spirit within the life of the Christian, within the life of the, the church. So uh, here in the show notes, I have a list of a ton of passages where it's directly the Holy Spirit. I, Obvious. Um, Paul would use the word spirit to talk about spiritual gifts, right? And you can see how that's connected to the spirit that lives inside of us. You know, you think yeah. about uh, anything from spiritual gifts that we may say aren't at work anymore, like uh, speaking in tongues. How are they able to do that? Well, it was through the Holy Spirit. Uh, but we can still think about gifts and talents and things that we're able to do today that we would want to connect to God and God's spirit at work in our lives. Um, I, I I have a list of things of here that are of or connected to the Holy Spirit, so not where he uses the word Holy Spirit, but it's obvious that what he's talking about within the world or within the church or within the Christian is connecting back uh, to the Holy Spirit. And so... If you actually go and look in the show notes, you're going to see that's the bulk of the way Paul's going to use the term to refer to something connected to the Holy Spirit. But sometimes 
Paul will use the word spirit to refer to something that we might want to say is non-physical. So spiritual forces. Um, we think of Ephesians, principalities, powers, and authorities kinds of a thing. Sometimes he'll use the word spirit in that way. Spiritual forces, something that's non-physical. Which, again, is what the Holy Spirit is anyways. Um, and sometimes he'll use it in a way that refers to the spirit of a human being, where it's in a way where it doesn't seem to be at least explicitly connected to the Holy Spirit. However, particularly referring to the human being, again, Paul uses it sometimes to refer to non-human being forces, so that the Holy Spirit, um, this isn't Paul, but you think of when Jesus says God is spirit, right? So you, you got yeah. the Holy Spirit, you've got God, you've got spiritual forces of, of evil, uh, so th- that's non-human. He'll sometimes use the word spirit and refer to non-human. And like I said, sometimes it seems like he's using it in a similar way with human beings. There's not a direct connection to the Holy Spirit. However, I would argue that Paul, as a Jew, anytime he uses the word spirit to refer to a human being is connecting it to the Holy Spirit. And this is why. So, uh, you, you may know this. The Greek word spirit can also mean breath or wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you could you would use the, the word pneuma to talk about the wind, like at the beginning. The, the wind uh, affects our ability to play disc golf or regular golf. If you were speaking Greek, you yeah. would use the exact same word, pneuma, right. wind. You talk about your breath. So when you speak, what comes out, pneuma, spirit, wind, breath, uh, that's the meaning of the Greek word. That's also the same meaning for the Hebrew word spirit. In Hebrew, yeah. the word spirit can mean spirit, wind, or breath as well. And so it's important to remember that Paul is not only Greek-speaking, but he's also a Jew, which means that Paul's understanding of the use of the word spirit is not only influenced by his contemporary Greco-Roman world, his Greek-speaking world, but it's also influenced by his Jewish roots in the Old Testament and the way the Old Testament uses the word spirit. And so both of these... Uh, have the same general meaning of the word spirit. And I think both his Greco-Roman world and his Jewish background come together in Paul's understanding and usage of the word spirit. And so the Jewish understanding of spirit begins in Genesis 1 and 2. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 opens up with God's spirit, if you remember, if you remember hovering over the waters Right? So God's spirit is there in creation. And then God speaks. He uses his breath, right? Spirit in Genesis 1 to bring about creation. And so in Genesis 1, God's spirit is directly involved in the creation of everything. You move on to Genesis 2, and in verse 7, God creates man. And we're told he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So we have breath and spirit again. God's spirit continues to create. It gives life to human beings. And so I would argue that that Jewish concept of spirit is that everything that exists is connected to God's spirit. God's spirit created it. It gives life to it. Because the spirit is life-giving. That's the way the idea of spirit is used, particularly in Genesis. And I think we've talked about this in other episodes, but God, theologically, God is the only being that truly exists. Everything else in existence exists because God shares existence with it, right? Scripture talks about God holding the universe together, right? It only holds together. It only exists because 
God shares existence with it. God holds it together. And I would argue that the Jewish understanding of the way that happens is through the Spirit. Because it's the Spirit that creates. It's the Spirit that gives life. It's the Spirit of God that sustains. And so that would mean that everything, to varying degrees, contains God's Spirit. Everything from a rock to a human being has some level of God's Spirit with it because it exists. God's allowing it to exist. God's sustaining it. Now, obviously, we would argue that a human being has more of the Spirit of God than a rock. And the idea of being filled with the Spirit as a Christian might mean more of the Spirit, but probably means more of God's Spirit's already in me because I am living. Now, I'm just in tune with the Spirit. I'm turning myself to the Spirit. I'm allowing the Spirit to lead and guide me in everything that I do as compared to a non-Christian who is rejecting the Spirit, who is choosing to live in a different way, is choosing to live uh, in their own way. And so with that, because you have non-Christians that a lot of the times do some really, really good things. And I think when they do those good things, it's because, hey, in that moment... It's the spirits at work in some way. And because of that, when you think about the spirit being that which gives life, that which sustains, right? You you can't talk about the human being's spirit without talking about the spirit of God as a Jew. It seems to me. That's mm. the argument that I would make. And so when Paul uses spirit particularly in connection to the human being, I would argue it's always in some form or fashion connected to the Holy Spirit. It's connected to God. It's not some ghost of you, some real you, something like that. That's not the way Paul uses spirit. He's using it to refer to our connection to God, either in us living by the Spirit, being in tune with that connection, or the life part of us, uh, that is given to us through God's Spirit, uh, the fact that we are held together and exist because of God's Spirit within us. And so when we think about the physical versus the spiritual, uh, the, at least for Paul, the contrast of the physical versus the spiritual is not that of physical existence, our bodies or the world or something like that, and spiritual existence. That's not what Paul's contrasting when he uses these different terms, physical versus spiritual. But what Paul is contrasting is sin and the part of us that's controlled by sin and God and the part of us that's controlled by God or controlled by the Holy Spirit. That's the way that Paul is using these contrasts. Not, again, in some spiritual body physical world is bad everything else is good but sin is bad and god in the spirit is good hmm. yeah um these that's probably a lot to take in <laughs> um if you haven't heard uh, some of those things before even if you have heard some of those things before that's why i want to encourage you to uh, go and look at those verses and see um the, the, the verse references accompany the, the points that uh, are being made with each of those. So uh, really dig into those things, you know, over the next uh, couple weeks and just try to understand Paul not just as a uh, New Testament writer, uh, but this heavily influenced Jewish background. That's what he was brought up in. That's what he knew. Same as Jesus, all of this. So uh, spend time with those things. Really understand Paul's head when he's writing this stuff down uh, because these are all important terms uh, as we move forward into uh, Paul's actual writings about new creation and, and all of that. So uh, a lot to... I mean, that was a lot to unpack, uh, but we'll do that more so uh, in more specific terms as we go through the various texts of Paul uh, that we'll focus in on, uh, but that hopefully gives you a good a good base. So keep this episode pulled up and, and refer back to those things to see how he uses those four terms there. Um, 
Another key thing that Paul does uh, throughout his writings, uh, he'll refer to Jesus as the new Adam, which is meant to make us think about the first Adam uh, and make a connection there to all of that. Uh, Spencer, what do you want to say about uh, Jesus as the new Adam? So one of Paul's key theological understandings of Jesus and Jesus' mission is, as you said, seeing him as the new Adam. And so Paul's line of, of, of logic and explanation when he uses this term is that through the human man, Adam, sin and death came into the world. Adam, the human being, sinned. That brought sin and death into the world. In Jesus, God now becomes a human man, like Adam. But through this second human man in Jesus, the results of Adam's sin have been reversed. So what Paul is doing is he's making a comparison and contrast between Adam and Jesus. They're similar. They're both human beings, Mm -hmm. but they're different. In that Adam brought about sin and death, Jesus reversed that, bringing about life. Jesus had conquered these powers of sin and death that Adam brought about and introduced life, eternal life, to human beings. So the idea there is that the work of Jesus was to reverse the sins of Adam. It's a direct comparison and contrast. They're both human beings, exactly the same. But they're exact opposites in what they bring about. Jesus reverses what Adam brought for the purpose of bringing God's creation back to the beginning, back to the way that it was supposed to be, back to pre-Genesis 3. And so again, in Paul, we see his discussion of Jesus, again, bringing us back to creation, bringing us back to Adam through this imagery of Jesus as the new Adam bringing about new life, reversing those problems that we see in Adam. And and we'll have have more to say about that as we move forward. Uh, But it's important for us to see that connection that Paul's making between Jesus and the original creation. And then what, and, but that also points us forward to the new creation, right? Because that's the life that Jesus is bringing about is the new creation reminiscent of what was pre- Genesis 3. Yeah, and uh, nothing to add there uh, from me other than, uh, like you said there, we'll, we'll dig into that specifically. And I imagine, I don't. I think we've talked about this before, I'm pretty sure 1 Corinthians 15 is one of those, we have to talk about it from Paul uh, passages. So uh, we'll, we'll be in there uh, talking about that idea since it's present there as well as uh, Romans 5, as you see in the notes there. Um, in connection to that whole uh, Jesus reversing uh, the sin of, of Adam and how that affects the whole of creation and the whole of ourselves, uh, there is the sanctification process that, that goes right along with that whole thing. Spencer, explain the sanctification idea uh, that Paul uses in a lot of his writing. So, Paul's understanding of salvation is a sanctification process. That's the way Paul's going to talk about salvation in terms of sanctification. And I would, we won't say much about it, but more of a reminder, we did an episode on sanctification. And so I would encourage you to go and listen to that. Um, But just a reminder of uh, some of what we talked about there, specifically how we see it in Paul, uh, is that salvation is a process. It's not just a one-time thing, but it's a process. And it's a process of being transformed through God's Spirit into the human beings that God created and designed us to be. Uh, When we come to faith, those chains holding us as slaves to sin and to death are broken allowing God's Spirit to transform our lives. Uh, The end result of this transformation process is for us to once again perfectly reflect the image of God we were created to reflect. It's taking us back 
again to Genesis 1 and 2. We were created in the image of God. We were created to be mirrors that reflect God back into the creation. When sin comes into the world in Genesis 3, it cracks that mirror. It's not that we don't reflect God anymore, but we don't we no longer are able to do it perfectly. What salvation is is it's the process of restoring that mirror of the spirit transforming us to better and better and better reflect God back into the creation like we were intended to. So again, Paul's discussion of salvation, particularly his discussion of sanctification, is pointing us back to Genesis 1 and 2, Hmm. particularly back to the concept of our original design to reflect God. That's what salvation is. That's the end result. Again, if salvation is a process, that there's an end. It's moving us towards something. We tend to say it's moving us towards heaven, which is partially true, but it's only pushing us towards heaven in as much as heaven is us is our image-bearing ability fully restored. That's what salvation is pushing us to. That's mm. what Jesus did, conquered the powers of sin and death and restored our image-bearing ability. That's what heaven's going to be. But again, that's pointing us back to Genesis 1 and 2. It's getting us back to that point. The 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 point of Christianity isn't to get to heaven, it's to reflect the image of God, which we're able to fully realize in heaven. So it's not that heaven's not important, but heaven is a sub-point to the main point of reflecting the image of God. And that's the way Paul's going to talk about salvation. And how and Jesus t- brings about salvation. And he talks about it um, using the terms and uh, ideas uh, with the apocalyptic worldview and the Jesus as the new Adam, uh, as we talked about here. And I, I think uh, if, you, you know, if you're listening, you can see kind of how that whole thing of, okay, the salvation process, well, this, salvation is a process getting us to where we need to be. And that includes the whole self, uh, as we've talked about. Uh, all of that coming to where it needs to be. And I I think you can start to understand Paul's mindset uh, of how all of these pieces work together uh, to get to this ultimate conclusion here. Uh, Spencer, anything left to to add before we wrap up the show here? I think that's it. Uh, We will see all of these things play out as we move through Paul. And I think they'll come to make more sense when we look at Paul using these terms in action. Uh, for yeah, example, yeah. The, the next place that we go will be 1 Corinthians 15. That's the most important text talking about resurrection, eternal life, I think. I, I think that's the place you have to start and every single one of these words and every single one of these themes will show up in 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll get to see it in action yeah. uh, in the next episode, which I think will help hopefully bring all of this together, and then we can flesh out some more specific details with some other passages that we see throughout Paul. Yeah, so definitely keep this uh, keep this episode open uh, on thinkingtheologically.org so you can use it as kind of a quick reference back to uh, particularly the the four terms uh, and how they're used, and then you can kind of, uh, as we're going through specific texts in future episodes, uh, make comparisons there while that's all happening. We've given you a lot today to uh, look over and, and study, and we strongly encourage that you do all of that. Again, check the show notes at thinkingtheologically.org for not only all of the verse references, but also some of the other episodes that we alluded to uh, during the uh, show today. Uh, We also want to encourage you to like us on Facebook. We've got other articles around all of this stuff coming out uh, that go along with what we're talking about, but that may we may not have time to uh, talk about in these longer episodes here. Uh, so definitely like that. Check that out. Please share us around with other people. Tell others about what we're doing uh, because we'd love for 
everybody to be involved in the thinking theologically process. That's why we do uh, what we do here. Uh, you can get a hold of us at strongchurchministries at gmail.com on Facebook or get a hold of Spencer there on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you, uh, even if it's good, bad, whatever. We'd just love to hear what you have to say, uh, especially true of maybe suggestions for future episodes. We just want to get you thinking theologically. Uh, We thank you for joining us today and in all of our episodes, and we'll see you around for the next one.